Yeah, man, as Ken would say, uh, welcome to the history of LASK one-on-one sessions. I'm Junior Francis. And this amazing series celebrates the Skia, Rocksteady, and vintage reggae scenes in Southern California and beyond through insightful conversations with legends and modern day players, including those behind the scene. And there are a lot of people behind the scene, too numerous to mention. Indeed, this is the 25th one-on-one sessions on our 10th of this new podcast and YouTube channel format. 10, wow, we're moving along. Today, we welcome veteran musician, Ken Stewart, who has honed his skills since the 1980s by literally performing alongside creators of Skia, the Skiatolites, wow. For many years, Ken was also a Skiatolites manager and he is quite the Jamaican music historian. Ken, welcome, sir. Thank you. Yeah, man, how is everything, sir? So far, so good. We just had a great weekend at the Supernova Ska Festival. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. It's Catalyze on tour. Uh, I guess this is your first tour since the lockdown, right? Yes. First time on the road. Mm. And how are you on the rest of the Catalyze feeling? And what was it like performing at the Supernova Festival this past weekend? Well, it was wonderful to see so many fans, musicians, friends, combinations of all of the above. And uh, it was, you know, it was great. It was previously sold out. So we knew it was going to be as as full as it could be. And it was a nice little spot uh, in a brewery uh, in an old fortress on the ocean in Hampton, Virginia, Mm -hmm. near Virginia Beach. And about how many people were in attendance when this catalyzed performed? Well, it's hard for me to judge crowds these days, but I want to say somewhere, I don't know, at least a thousand, but not too many more than that. I'm not really sure. I never asked them mm-hmm. how many tickets they did sell, but, right. you know, it seems like big, I'd say for the bigger acts, ourselves, Hepcat seemed to have a good crowd on Sunday and Pilfers on Friday. Probably the most people was on Saturday and Sunday, though. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and how the band typically tour the United States? Uh, do you go by van or by trailer or jet? I mean, I don't know how deep your guys' pockets. If we're doing routings that, you know, are fairly close together, like we are about to start on Thursday and come see you in L.A. on Saturday, we will be traveling in a Sprinter van, which they have now doubled the price to rent. Why is that so? Oh, the good old COVID price gouging. Wow, that's extremely unfortunate. And the promoters are not saying, oh, yeah, we're going to double the price. (laughs) (laughs) Hotels in California are ridiculous. They're getting at least $100 for even Motel 6. And it's, it's, you know, it's very... Price gouging again. Yeah, it's very challenging to come back out on the road under this, because the fees didn't go up and people are usually trying to offer you less because they know that capacities are down and this and that. And so it's, it's a battle, but we're coming. Yeah. So between transportation and hotels, you guys have to pay the farmers ransom. Wow. (laughs) That's extremely unfortunate, man. So let's talk about you, uh, your background. Uh, I will, I think I read somewhere uh, that your upbringing, in fact, both of your parents were musicians. 
That is correct. Uh-huh. My dad, I am at my dad's house right now. He's 81 and still performing in an 88-piece symphonic orchestra, as well as several jazz, trad, trad jazz, traditional jazz. 88. 88-piece symphonic band called the Arizona Winds. Wow. There's wow. five tubas. He's one of five tubas. And, and your, your dad plays what instrument? Tuba and trumpet. But in this band, he plays tuba. Yeah, wow. And not to leave out your mom, she plays instrument as well? She plays piano and she played the bass drum when my parents were in high school and there was an early pregnancy involved and my mom was carrying the bass drum while I was inside her, she was playing in the marching band and my dad wow. was playing the sousaphone close by. <laughs> so music all from before birth, <laughs> from in the womb, music, music, music. <laughs> Come on. So when did you start playing music at home? When did you learn to play music? Well, they sat me down at the piano. We would do these little trios where I'd be kind of like tinking on the ivories a little bit. My mom would play something, a vamp, and my dad would play a bass line, and we'd jam out in the, in the basement. And the piano we had was the player pianos. We had the old-fashioned rolls, but it wasn't electric. You had to pedal that sucker. So as soon as I was old enough to do that, I started learning the you know, loving the ragtime because that's most of what those roles were. It's Scott Joplin and Jelly Roll Morton and this kind of stuff, you know. So eventually I joined the choir first uh, with my mom at church. She had joined it too. So then that same year, we, you know, I, I, I could read music. They taught us in school how to read music. And so I could start off pretty well. And then I immediately... You could tell I was kind of musical, so I started taking lessons, right. piano lessons, mm -hmm. which didn't last. By the time I hit junior high school, that was no longer really what I wanted to do. I wanted to play. And actually, when I was in fifth grade, some neighborhood kids came by and asked my mother permission if I could be in their band. And we played mostly Beatles, Let It Be. The album had just been released, and that's what they wanted to play. And a couple of blues and one, like a couple of songs that I could try to improvise to. Nice. So outside of Beatles, uh, who are some of your musical influences? Oh, I think I Beatles know. was by default since the band members wanted you to play that. Well, at an early age, I, you know, I liked the typical rock stuff. Um, I was more fond of bands that had more interesting stuff going on, though. Uh, I, st I stepped quickly into progressive rock. Yes was, you know, my, one of my favorites. Jethro Tull, um, Emerson Lake and Palmer to some extent. But then fairly early on, I got into jazz fusion because it wasn't, you know, it was, it was the embryonic stages of that. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be also walking by in downtown Boston. There was a place called Jazz, the Jazz Workshop and Paul's Mall. And actually Bob Marley and Toots both performed at those venues early on in the early 70s. I never knew about that, but I didn't even know really what reggae was 
Oh, sorry, I got an alarm going off. Yeah, I put that on a while ago. Anyway, um, yeah, so I saw, I'm walking down the street and on the marquee, I see Cannonball Adderley. And I recognize the name because I listen to jazz on the radio. So I go to this show and, you know, it's a small, tiny club. And also with, with Cannonball Adderley is Nat Adderley, his brother who played trumpet. Cannonball plays tenor or alto. I can't even remember. I think alto. Anyway, this was, you know, a long time ago. And I recognized a couple of the tunes from the radio. And so that was my first jazz show, really. And I just took a loving to, to fusion, especially the, the band called The Crusaders was, I think, the first album I got a hold of or heard. And then I just went from there and Chick Corea, who was also local for me. But at that time, in the mid-70s, Boston was pretty much the jazz mecca. You had some stuff going on in L.A. with certain labels and folks, but most of it was based in New York and Boston. You had Berkeley School of Music. You had Pat Metheny, Gary Burton, all these jazz greats and you know upcomings and also <clears throat> slightly older folks lived in that general vicinity. So you had a lot of stuff coming through. And if you went out on a given night, you could see four to four to five bands per night in different wow. clubs if you went bar hopping, mm -hmm. every, and even on a Monday night. So uh, let me ask you about uh, to share some of your musical endeavors prior to joining uh, Scatterlights. Did you play with other bands before? Yes, I played. Of course, I played in, in high school. I played in rock bands, ju even junior high school. Mm. Uh, started a couple of bands and they were, you know, nothing big, but we played at least for the high school and for the Eagles Club and our parents and stuff would try to get us gigs and that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> so eventually, uh, I stopped playing for a while. I was, I was, you know, I wasn't going to... It's funny because I have two musical parents, but they weren't really interested in, in me going to Berkeley, which I definitely entertained that idea early on. But I ended up um, studying occupational therapy instead. And, you know, I had a day job and Somewhere around the early 80 or the around 83, 84, I finally bought a polyphonic synthesizer and, you know, started experimenting with, with what was going on a lot. And I also was taking a, like, a liking to a lot of the reggae I was hearing and was just starting to sort of experiment with it almost subconsciously. <laughs> and then someone called me up and asked me if I wanted to come to an audition for a reggae band. That was early, early 90s, uh, 86. 86. So I went and I met a, a, a group of characters that um, had a band going on, a couple Jamaicans, uh, one particular that was named Coswell Jackson, called Jaco from uh, Mo Bay, from Katadupa. And he was the, the, the lead vocalist. And there was a couple of guys, uh, there was, you know, black and white folks in the band and got friendly with them. And 
learned about Jamaican culture and cuisine and music. And then we went to see the first big show together. They said, oh, Burning Spears coming to town. You got to see that. So off I go to Burning Spear. Now, I had no idea really what I was going to. And I get there and he was already starting to gray up a little bit. His, the dreads, you know, long dreads, gray hair. And his band was just amazing. But uniquely, they had the three girls had just started playing with him on horns. Mm-hmm. So you had three young, beautiful women playing horns, very nicely dressed there up on stage with these older Rastas and Jamaican guys. And it was a very cool mix. And of course, you know, Spear, his voice sounded like a trumpet. And he's just going off on these two chord jams all night long. And man, I just loved it. And I really started to appreciate the music at that point, right? Man, this really is something, you know, what you can do with even those two chords within. I really love the ensemble effects. And there wasn't so much focus on particular soloing. Maybe somebody would get a solo, but that wasn't like the big part Mm -hmm. of it. It was like much more about what each person was contributing. So I liked that a lot. And I decided I was going to stick with it. Mm-hmm. So I joined the, the band that opened that night was a band, a guy called Errol Wilson, a.k.a. Wilson Blue, who was known in Jamaica as Boy Blue, but he was the Boy Blue from Mo, Mo Bay because there was another Boy Blue from Kingston. And Blue had a voice, boy, he could sing ballads and he could sing just about any kind of music. And he could also... If you play, you know, you were coming in as a fairly new reggae player, he could tell you how to play your, no matter what instrument, he could tell you how to play reggae on it. Wow. So he was particularly helpful. You know, he didn't make it big time. No, he had a, he has a record. There was two records put out and I have one of them at my house. And that was, you know, a, a fairly primitive production that he did locally in Rhode Island. But the next one, he went down to Miami and when Inner Circle had just bought their studio Mm -hmm. in Miami, he went down and cut a record with them. We're talking maybe 89 or, no, it was more like 87 or, so that was never released that I know of. But that's the thing, you know, the, his girlfriend slash manager really didn't actually want him to go on tour. But she humored him and put out this stuff because she, you know, she just, they were, they were taxing it just to tour New England. So God love him. He was, he was a great singer. I, I don't want to say too much more than that. Yeah, career ruined. <laughs> so here's a million dollar question now, Ken. Uh, how did you get introduced to the Scatalites? Well, this is part of the story because it was that band that it happened in. So all of a sudden we're sitting there one day and this, this, the girlfriend slash manager says, oh, well, our drummer can't make a certain show. So we're going to use Lloyd Nib from the Scatolites. And I had just seen the Scatolites for the first time a couple months previously. And as I said to a friend of mine, if there's any band I could ever be in, this wow. is the band. And all of a sudden 
now the story changes from he's coming to do one gig to Lloyd Nib is coming to live in our house and to be our drummer. And I was in disbelief and also scratching my head saying, why would he ever want to do that? Because these two were quite the duo. Like it was almost like a co bad comedy team. But, um, you know, he, he came up, you know, he brought his drum set. He had been living at King Bravo's house in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know who King Bravo was, but he was actually a singer who recorded a couple of tracks but he was mostly an extremely entrepreneurial type of guy who bought a house in South Orange, New Jersey, probably for about five grand when, you know, you could just buy any house, these te old tenements in the bad neighborhood. And as long as you lived in it, you know, mostly there was crackheads living on all the empty ruined ones next door, but it was, just, it was an interesting experience. And a lot of people lived with King Bravo uh, Winston Grennan lived with King Bravo, Lloyd Brevett, Lloyd Nib, Tommy McCook, uh, people that came in and out of the, you know, Toots's band, Scatolite, Winston Grennan's band. It was, a, you know, like a housing for, for wayward musicians that uh, were trying to find their way, you know. So he, uh, that's where I went to actually ended up at my first audition was at King Bravo's house. Mm -hmm. so when finally you know I, I got to know Lloyd that was 87 that he moved to Rhode Island and in early 88 we got him out of that situation because it was not a good situation and we got him up to Boston and we started a band <clears throat> this is another funny story because we started a band called the Supersonics because I asked Lloyd what what names he had played with that he thought was not a problem to use. And I had no clue what the history of the supersonics. He didn't have YouTube. You didn't have, if I didn't have a record in my hand, I didn't know that was a band. They didn't even have internet. So I, we started Lloyd Nib in the supersonics, but Tommy was not particularly happy with that. Because Tommy was actually aspiring to start restart the Supersonics as well as the Scatolites in America. But how would Tommy know about the the, uh, the band a band in New England? Oh, well, because we because we saw Tommy regularly. Because oh yeah. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we got Lloyd out of the situation was because it came up that there was a gig at SOB's schedule for the Scatolites. And this woman, the girlfriend slash manager, she wouldn't let him go. So that's when I had to say, all right, this woman is not going to mess up the scatolites. So she does, she's a musician controller. Yeah, she was just a vampire of various sorts. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> And the people who actually might listen to this and know who I'm talking about will be <laughs> chuckling like you are. <laughs> so the anyway, musician, you are the control. <laughs> I actually wrote a song about it when we <laughs> when we started Dion Nib and the Agitators. Uh, on the album is a, a song called "Escape in the Night." So you can try to listen to that and, and all right, figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. So, so we got uh, yeah, go ahead. 
So that was when, you know, when Lloyd came to Boston was when around the same time, it was Lloyd's 57th birthday was March 8th, 1988. And I think it was right two weeks before that, that I had gone to the audition. And the first gig coming up was one that I didn't play because it was too solemn for me to really grasp the music properly. So they used a Jamaican guy for that one, but Tommy and Jackie weren't getting along. Tommy was living, I mean, Jackie was living in Toronto. Yes. So they, were, they weren't using him. They had already had a falling out since they had made the, the reunion. Same thing with Dizzy. Dizzy was not, and Dizzy, you know, neither one was living nearby. So it didn't make sense to use them in the, what were they were trying to create a touring band, you know, they, mm -hmm. So I went to the audition and I, I got the job, but I had to wait till the get next gig, which was April 30th, I believe, 1988, with Owen Gray, who I knew absolutely nothing about. Again, no clue. We went to the gig with no rehearsal, no music, no nothing. And they gave us a tape that day. And it was all lover's rock with overproduced synthesizers. And I was immediately, I said, who, which bass player is playing this? Because Brevet didn't play electric bass, number one. And his just, you know, I, we would have taken a week to rehearse that show properly. So ultimately- So what was the outcome I'm interested in knowing? The outcome was an extremely late start. I think we went on, it was, it was at a West Indies club in Trenton, New Jersey where I was the only white guy within six miles of the place. And I had curry goat for the first time in my life. And got the whole, you know, it's like a crash course in Jamaican culture, really. Like in, I've been to a few reggae shows, but it's different when everybody in the room is Jamaican and the band is the Scatolites. And everybody's probably 50 years old Jamaican. So this is a different kind of experience, you know, and I was loving it, but it was just, I, I felt bad because I felt, I knew that we were unprepared and I didn't know what was going to happen, but we did pull it off. We did end up playing mostly just Owen Gray, Ska, and um, that would on the beach and stuff like, you know, like Boogie Woogie. He was, he was a better piano player than I am. He still is. I saw, ironically, I saw Owen. Did you lose me? Oh, no, no, I'm listening. I'm laughing. Okay. I knew he was a piano player. His mom taught him, yeah. Yeah, he plays some serious piano. Wow. And I've, got, I've been with Owen on a couple of experiences since. We, did, we played with him in Jamaica in 2000, mm -hmm. where we were on tour with Heineken Star Time. And it was him and Monty Morris and Prince Buster and... That was quite a quite a series of shows. We also played at Jamaica House for PJ and Carlos Malcolm performed with Ernest Wranglin and John Holt, and all at, P at Jamaica House. So that was interesting. And then we saw Owen uh, the other day, actually it was almost 30 years to the day since I had played the show with him. And uh, we went playing at uh, Neville Staples festival over in England called Scamouth. And I walked up and he was doing this radio interview and I realized 
It was the last Saturday in April, exactly 30 years to the day that I met him. It's pretty funny. My goodness. So he's still performing and still touring. He lives in England. Yeah, he's he's alive and well that I know. You know, I mean, I've checked on him since COVID. I think we are actually friends on on Facebook, but I don't yeah, think he's, he's on uh, he, I think he was born 1931. He's um, performing and touring. That's good. Wonderful. One of the oldest legends alive today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the legends are really fun. And talk, that man can talk. You want to interview him, actually. Yeah, it's, it's on. You, you'd, have to, you'd have to be a series because this man has stories and he talked He's a good talker. Wow, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. Mm -hmm. I've hung him out having breakfast with him and all that kind of stuff. Endless great stories, you know? Wow. Yes, sir. We definitely have him on the agenda. So the number of original members of this Catalyze who you've uh, not only performed with, but built a close relationship with, uh, reads like a who's who uh, and foundation Jamaican musician. So it's easier for me to mention them one by one rather than for you to just juggle your memory. So let's yeah. start with um, Jackie Metu, your relationship with him. Jackie, know because they, you know, they, they wanted him. When we, when we booked the Bunny Whaler tour, which we came out in 1989 and played five shows in, in California alone with the Scatolites and Bunny Whaler, um, unfortunately, Jackie had already been diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and was in and out of the hospital frequently at that time. But the, the folks wanted him involved. So when I got to, everybody arrived in, um, in San Jose. And the first show was in Santa Cruz and the second show was in San Mateo, which is ironic because they're only about 30 miles apart. But, you know, you have to go over the mountains and it's just it's a different market. But Jackie didn't come the first day and I was really disappointed. But then he showed up the second day. So we were really thrilled. And he stayed with us for the four shows we played side by side. And he, um, we moved, as we moved out of California, things started to go sour on the tour. We got to Minneapolis, we didn't play. We got to St. Louis and we didn't play. And then the tour split the band in half because the Scatolites were double booked. And there was another performance scheduled in Japan, which was the band's first trip to Japan but it was only Roland, Lester, and Jackie from the actual Scatolites because nobody else had proper paperwork to leave the country yet. They hadn't, you know, if they, they hadn't green cards, they hadn't whatever it was that they needed to leave, so they couldn't go. So they put together a Scatolites of Winston Grennan. And you see this poster has been, uh, this picture has been posted very much recently. I think Brian just posted it the other day. So Brian Atkinson on, um, on, guitar, on bass guitar, mm -hmm. Lynn Tate on guitar, um, Gladdy Anderson on second keyboard with Jackie. And uh, 
David Madden on trumpet and Bubbles, Bubbles Calvin Cameron. So you had Roland Lester on horns with Bubbles and, and uh, David on trumpet. So that was the horn section. And then you had Gladdy and Jackie on keyboards, Lynn Tate on guitar, Winston Grennan. So it was a killer lineup. Still not the Scatolites really, but you know, everybody had a great time. And there's footage of it. There's a lot of this. Uh, the band called Scarflames invited me. They own a club in Tokyo and we went and watched the footage and it is drop dead, just so hysterically funny because at some point in the show, Jackie, who got a little bit too tipsy, unfortunately, he pulled this at the village gate too. And he got, he, he took off his shoes and his socks. He threw his socks and his shoes over the, the horn section's head as he disrobed. And then he proceeded to try to play with his feet. Yeah, a lot of people have stories about Jackie. <laughs> yeah. And most of them are that's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, that's what he did during the first series of shows ever in the United States when the Scatolites played at the Village Gate with a bunch of uppity jazz snobs and shit stuff, you know, like that didn't fly at all, you know. He did, they did not get good reviews. Yes, sir. So from Jackie to uh, Judge Jerry Hines. Jerry, I only met very briefly. Well, he, Jerry was playing guitar on, um, on the first show that I saw. Mm -hmm. And I did get to meet them backstage the same night I met all the guys from Bim Scala Bim, who were also there drooling because the Scatolites had just come to town for the first time. So I got to chat with John Jerry very briefly then. But then Jerry was on the shows that I was talking about before. He was more of almost like an MC. I think he introduced us, come out or something. But he was already not really able to play by not 2000. Mm -hmm. So I did meet him and hang out with him on that trip. But other than that, that was, you know, I never got to actually play with him. Right. Roland Alfonso. Roland's was one of the first I met and I... I went to his house. Where was he living? In Queens. Mm -hmm. Right? Kind of close to where Coxon's store was. But in Queens, not in Brooklyn. So we, I went to the house and he handed me a Casio, about like a two-octave Casio. He said, let's play some music. So I didn't really know what to do. And we ended up playing... Uh, you know, I'm not really much of a jazz player. And back then I was even less. So I didn't know what to play with them. So I played, we ended up playing a piece that's actually Bach, but it was also recorded as a song from the 60s called How Gentle Is the Rain? So we scot it. And and he laughed just like that. He had a laugh very much. <laughs> but one of the things I'll never forget about Roland is our first show at the Whiskey A Go-Go. 
when people were diving off the balcony into the stage diving onto the crowd. And LaRolla would do this thing where he would when he got excited, because, you know, Roland had three strokes before I met him, which I'm I'm an occupational therapist assistant. That's what I studied. And I worked with a lot of folks with post-stroke and that kind of stuff. So it was particularly interesting to me when he told me that his first stroke, he couldn't play at all after it. But when he had the second one, he got better than he had after the first stroke. So he got to be, you know, he could, he was able to use both hands. And if you watched him play, you could see that, you know, the one hand didn't work quite right, but he still was able to move those valves around. So he was, you know, amazing guy. And Tommy, again, you know, he wasn't always playing in the band. When I first got in the band, we only played about 10 shows in the first year. And I was puzzled because we had the same managers, Toots and the Maytals and Third World and Sister Carol and all a bunch of artists were all under the same Herbie Miller. So we'd only played 10 shows and I'll bet Herbie was only involved in the booking of about six of those. Other than that, it was pure West Indies clubs and that kind of stuff. Tommy was booking on his own, you know? So finally, um, you know, it was me that actually made the Bunny Whaler happen thing for happen for us because uh, it was my friends in Boston at the Channel, which was one of the biggest clubs on the East Coast. Um, they were the ones putting on the, they had been talking to originally Peter and Bunny and then Peter got shot and it took another two years, but they got Bunny to finally come out on his own. And he released that that album that year, the Liberation, which won the Grammy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, Roland was just not not supposed to play. Well, he didn't play that whole tour. He only played the West Coast dates of the, the not the Bunny Whaler tour, but the the when we came back and did the real headline Scatolites tour. We played at Whiskey. We played in San Diego with Let's Go Bowling and Donkey Show. And there was a big ska show. I can't, I believe the place was called the Country Club. But I was talking to somebody this weekend about this because there's people that were around during those times. And they think it was a place called Soma, which stands for something I don't know. But anyway, um, Roland's was picked up at the airport by my mom because she lived nearby and he was flying in for some reason a day earlier than the rest of us. So we got, I got my mom to pick him up and she brought him to her home and he stayed there. And that man asked me every time I saw him until he died, he asked me how my mother was. Mm -hmm. And he was always very family because I got friendly with his family from day one. His, his son, Noel, played drums, plays drums, played awesome drums. His sister, um, Noel's sister, Michelle, uh, was one of the older children in the family, got very friendly with her. And uh, there's the other son called Junior and her, her Hermione, which is Roland's wife. You know, I was pretty close, not real close, <laughs> but I always felt fond and I felt like they felt 
fondly for me, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sadly, he got stroke at a very young age. I don't understand how that worked. Physical yeah, um, I think he was still living in Kingston when he got stroke the first time. Still a young man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we move on also as an extensive list. How about Tommy, sir? Well, Tommy was one of the first, you know, I had to I had to be cleared by Tommy. So I had already been cleared by Lloyd Nib, and he brought me to see Tommy, and that was a process that I had to endure. And it, it took a minute. And I we we didn't always see eye to eye. And at the end, uh, at the end of the first headline tour, we had a falling out. And that's, you know, I, I had to leave the, the band. And the minute I left the band, I got a call from Winston Grennan because he had heard, he said, Ken, I just spent two hours telling Tommy he's crazy, man. And I said, well, I basically what I said to Tommy when we had the argument was, you can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> so Winston grabbed me immediately, took me under his wing, but that's that's the next part of the story, I guess. We'll stick with the Scatolites for now. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. So Lloyd Rivet, sir. Lloyd Brevett, same thing, same day, same audition, because it wasn't, you know, Roland wasn't there that day. Lester, the, they didn't bring the horns because it was just a rhythm section rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Brevett was kind of shaky already, you know, both, you know, he was very frail and he was thin and he moved quite slowly and smoked endless amounts of ganja. And it was a problem always with that, that doghouse, as he called it, with that bass. You know, he had an upright bass. And Coxon had given him a, a transducer for the thing, and it just was not working properly. And it was, I don't know if it was a short, it needed to be soldered or what it was, but, you know, it was always a challenge with that thing. And it, it went on from the day one at the rehearsal. You know, they were having problems with the, getting the sound good sound out of the bass but as far as you know once we got going and the rehearsal actually went in and him start kick up his shoulder there and get that man yes sir. and the other lloyd nibs well lloyd was my key from from day one when the right. minute i met the man we we got along famously mm -hmm. and you know he would come he'd come to my father's performances actually yeah and um, well, we played in the band in the Wilson Blue Band together for close to a year before I got him out of there. And then, of course, we did this to the Supersonics, and we just got closer. Oh, I got him a day job too, which was actually through a friend of mine, Ketty Bob. We call him Bob Heffernan. Gave us both a job selling antique auto parts. But Lloyd's job was to, for about the first two years, I think, he sorted engine valves because we worked for a guy who bought new old stock parts from warehouses in Australia and come by the boatload or arrive a whole trailer full of engine valves. But what the hell do they go to? So you have to sit with a cross-reference thing, and depending on which manufacturer it was, 
oh, this fits a 1912 Pierce Arrow, and this goes to a 37 Caddy, and so on and so forth. You know, and Lloyd was literally down there for a good 18 months sorting these damn valves. And we would go rescue him every every couple hours and give him lunch and smoke a spliff and all that stuff now. <laughs> yes, sir. Dizzy Johnny Moore. Oh, God. Dizzy was definitely... Dizzy and Jackie, personality-wise, were my favorites. And I think I ultimately got along with them the best. Mm -hmm. Even though Lloyd and I so close, he would piss me... We would, we would piss each other off plenty of the time, you know? But as far as synchronization of thought, similar <laughs> brain waves and that kind of stuff, me and Jackie really got along. Unfortunately, he passed away barely a year and a half after I met him. And Dizzy was not living, you know, in, in the US. So I didn't get to see him very much, but when I did, I always, and I was the one, and I'll pat myself on the back for this one. I was the one that brought Dizzy back into the band because those other guys didn't care. And that was re obvious when he got there. And that's why he left fairly quickly because they didn't want to treat him like he was even original. It was weird. But Dizzy, you know, he, he was a great talker. He was a great player, but he was physically you know, not able to play as well as he could in the, in the years that I knew him. Right. He had had a serious problem with, I'm not sure if it was a hernia or something in his stomach. He had surgery when he was up here <clears throat> before he went home in the mid-80s. So his playing wasn't quite what it was in the beginning, you know, just like a lot of them. I mean, right. obviously mm -hmm. the years catch up with you. Depending mm -hmm. on your instrument, you just can't play it as well. I mean, right. Mm-hmm. Cedric I. Ambrose. Oh, goodness. Cedric. I had heard about Cedric because Cedric showed up at a New Year's Eve party that they played, which Scatolites have not played very much on New Year's Eve at all. But they did once in Miami or somewhere in Florida. Must have been Miami area. So his name was on the poster and I knew that he was going to be there, but I didn't know anything about him, really. And then, of course, Cedric and I, re well, Cedric came along right when I rejoined the band. Mm -hmm. So here, fast forward to 1998, that's when I came back. I left in, in mid-90, right after the big tour. And then I was working in various things. And then all of a sudden, the Scatolites, Tommy died in May of 98. And Roland died, as you well know. After his performance at the Key Club, mm -hmm. he died at, at uh, what Mount Sinai Hospital, I believe, uh, November twentieth, I believe. So there was even shows that year that I played on, that, <clears throat> and Cedric played a couple of shows at the tail end. I think there was one in Cambridge, and that was the first time I met Cedric. And we just played at the Middle East, I believe. <clears throat> So then we both started touring Europe together with the band. You know, the band had already been established for a few years so that the market was very strong and they were going three and four times a year, which we still are going three and four times a year to Europe. And 
So that's when we really started to, to play together. And I started to understand who he even was and all of his other previous projects and, you know, Light of Saba and <coughs> Mystic Revelation of Rastafari and Flash Forward and all of these various things that he's done that, you know, and his playing, of course, he always sound kind of like a, a cross between the two, Tommy and Roland. But he also had that more African influence. Yes, he was Afrocentric, man. <laughs> and that was, we always would wind up at jam sessions, especially if they gave us a day off. You know, we, we find a part, we create a party in a jam session or we get invited somewhere. So that's when I really started to understand all of that about him. You know, he was mm -hmm. really, and jazz, <clears throat> he was very jazzical. And, very knowledgeable of all of it. Right. You know? Now, I have my own small story to tell about him. Now, when he joined the Scatalyze, he told me Scatalyze was trying. He was to... living in LA. Yes, Scatalyze yeah, trying yeah. to recruit him, but he's been reluctant, uncertain. And yeah, this yeah. is my selling point. I said to him, Have you been to Japan? Have you been to London, Paris, and all these countries? And I said, You know what? You compromise. I don't know how many more years you're going to have on this planet Earth. You go with the scatterlights, you get to know all these countries. So put aside, you know, make everything secondary. You know, like these guys are so right, you just deal with it and go. And he said, Junior, I'm going to look into it. Next, you know, he joined uh, the scatterlights. Yes, sir. And they, you'll travel the world. They loved him so much in every damn one, too, <laughs> especially Russia. Mm -hmm. But he, he, he was an intellectual giant. I think if I'm not mistaken, he had either a master or a bachelor's degree, but he had studied uh, extensively. Yeah, yeah. He, was, Very he, knew about, he knew about drumming. He could play yes. all kinds of bass. He could play all kinds of stuff. Like Steep in his African culture and roots. <laughs> yes, yeah. sir. So we move on. Now, how about uh, those who are still in the flesh? Uh, let's start with Lester. Perhaps he's the senior member of all the musicians that are alive now, right? I could be wrong. Was he born 1938, 39? 36. Yeah, that's it. January 31st, 1936. Yeah. So he's perhaps one of the oldest uh, musicians alive today. Of the Scatolites. Well, except for Ernie, if you call, you know, Ernie always says he's a Scatolite. Those guys said not officially, but Ernie's 89. Mm -hmm. I okay. could probably play a show if we got enough money for him. Right. So, okay. So, and who, um, um, Carlos Malcolm, is a few of them around that age group. 36. Huh? And Dennis how is Sindri, he? How is Lest huh? Dennis Sindri still alive. Well. Okay. Um, Fred Campbell, they still have the band. Yes. Fred, right. Fred Campbell, um, Herman Sang, mm -hmm. Keezy, and. So those yeah, are guys who were born now in the early to mid thirties. They have a band called Ska Jams. No, they I mean in, in terms of birth, they were born. I don't early. know about Herman and those guys, but I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, they were recording with Prince Buster before Scatolites existed. Well, so. Yeah, they go back there. Yeah. <laughs> and how is Lester doing, sir? For the benefit of my benefit and the benefit of his fans. Lester was in ICU in June. Oh. But he was immediately discharged and put in rehab. I just spoke to him the other day, last week, and he was doing much better. 
But, you know, COVID has, has stopped, shut down gyms and stuff. And that was something that Lester was doing every day. He was going to nice. the gym. And when he stopped, I guess he started to gain weight. And, yeah. you know, he's not as mentally active because he's not going out of the house. He's not doing, you know, you need to keep some kind of routine going, I think, at that age. And when it stops and you're shut down and basically sitting around the house, it can't be mentally or physically good for you, you know? Not at all, sir, not at all. And how about Miss Schaefer, sir, Doreen? Doreen is doing very well. She's very frustrated because, you know, I, I had to send her home from the, from the tour in 2019 because I couldn't stand the look on her face. She has to have her knees replaced again. She's in pain. And she's the kind of person that she wouldn't complain. She wouldn't tell me she's going to leave the tour. So I said, Dorian, you need to go home. I can't stand the look on your face because I know you're in pain. So we had hoped, you know, that she would go home and have her surgery and be back out with us not too long afterwards. But along came the COVID. And now here we are 18 months later, and it's barely possible for her to even go into a facility to have the surgery. And I don't think anybody's really dying to hang out in the hospital these days. And then another two months of rehab in a nursing home. I think she's going to wait until the coast is clear, which mm -hmm. none of us know at this point how clear it's ever going to be. But, you know, she's, she's anxious to come. She's, you know, we're scheduled for Freedom Sound Festival in, in Germany next year. And, she would see a lot of her cronies, Dr. Ringding. She'd been performing with Dr. Ringding in Germany since the mid nineties. And uh, the, the Stingers have just been booked on that festival now. Doreen was performing with the Stingers. They're dying to have her come, sing a tune with them. And, and she's dying too, but you know, we just have to wait and see what, what, what can be allowed and what, if she can get her knee surgery done, that'd be the main part. Right. And how about Vin Gordon? Vin's doing well. Vin's in Paris, ready to move, boy. He calls me every week. Like, What's going on? It's like, well, it depends on, you know, they just shut down Europe again. Right. Buck, from, Buck from the Toasters told me he just lost all of his October stuff in Europe, just like the other day. So, they've, and London and, you know, England, UK and Europe, the mainland, shut down. So, and who knows, you know, like I said, we're scheduled to play in, in April over there next year, but we don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So everybody's in the same thing. It's like, well, should we bother rescheduling all this so that we can turn around and change it all again? But what else are we going to do? Mm -hmm. I know I'm going back to Panama for another winter. Oh, you mean to perform or live? Well, both. You know, I, when I was down there last winter, I told you a little about, about it, I believe. I was in, you know, there's a studio down there where Dan Vitale is from Bim Scala Bim. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a guy with a studio. I'm going to see that guy next week. Actually, he's from uh, Northern California. He's home right now. In Panama. I thought in Panama, there's, there, we're recording Calypso, mostly right. Calypso. And there's a guy called Calypso Joe. And there's a lot of uh, old Calypsonians hanging around in Panama on the Costa Rican border there. Which, aren't you Costa Rican? Me? No, sir. I, uh, unfortunately, I'm Jamaican. I thought you was 
father was Costa Rican or something? No, my my generation now about uh, on my mom's side, I think eight generation grew up same place in the hills of Manchester. Because I know four, wow. uh, they talk about another three, same place. And my dad is about four generations, same place in the pristine hills of Manchester. Wow. I, I, then there's pure rumor flying around there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Plus, you speak Spanish, and everybody's trying to make an excuse for why. Okay. I have a good secretary for my translation. Yeah. <laughs> Very brilliant. <laughs> yes, as we move along, sir, Larry McDonald. Oh, God. Larry and I met back when he went on the session and got back involved with the band in, in the mid 90s. He's on the High Bob Ska. And, you know, he started showing up at shows and I see him here. I see him there. I know we always, I think we kind of, oh, Legends of Ska. I got to know him a lot better at Legends of Ska. And um, more and more, you know, we try and use him whenever we're in the city. And now he's officially back in the band. Right. He's going to be on the tour coming up. Nice. And... It's always such a pleasure, of course, you know, monumental history again, yeah. almost 30 years with Gil Scott Heron mm -hmm. during, during the, the prime years of Gil Scott Heron's career. Uh, you'll see him in a lot of videos in that stuff. It's really cool. Yes. But also was like a good friend of Bob. I don't know that he even actually played for Bob, but I know they were friends because I saw a picture of them when Bob and him were quite young. And I'm not sure of the playing history there, but, you know, of course, Alpha, uh, Alpha, Carlos Malcolm and the Caribs and all that history there. And I did you interview him or somebody interviewed? Maybe it was Roger. I don't know. Yeah. He, I saw him talking a lot. Not that interviewed either one. Yeah, somebody somebody interviewed him and he was talking a lot about how how difficult it was to show up with a conga drum in Jamaica because that wasn't what people were really using right. then. it was either a keti drum or timbale or you know just conga people and so he I enjoyed his his story about how his struggles to make the conga an acceptable instrument right. in the studio yeah 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 he also, and he missed but he missed the whole rock steady period because he was in Mexico. Oh, I thought it was in New York. Okay. Because that's where I met him. Ah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Douglas, Val Douglas then. Val, I, I met personally when he was playing for Toots in the mid-90s. And his, rep his reputation had well preceded him because what the first bass player that I ever played with reggae with was John Kilroy. Val Douglas was one of his idols. <clears throat> so he always told me, oh, you know, and we listened to certain tracks with Val on them. I know always know. I mean, I don't always know it, but you can usually tell if the bass playing gets real interesting, it's probably Val. And he just has, you know, he's got an ear that is beyond comparison i think val when we do sound check and sometimes a certain frequency will make 
a piece of the fur or even the furniture rattle. <clears throat> and Val will say, oh, that's that frequency. And he tells the sound man what knob to touch to fix that problem. He's got an incredible, brilliant. incredible ear. <laughs> and yeah. his playing is also obviously yes, quite oh, good. My so. goodness. <laughs> the timekeeper, Trevor Sparrow Thompson. <laughs> Sparrow came along when he when Lloyd Nib had some surgery back a couple of years before he passed away. I didn't know Sparrow. A lot of people know Sparrow from way back when, but I didn't. And I met Sparrow when he came and played with us in Lloyd, you know, and it was interesting because Lloyd was well enough and we had the money to bring the two of them to, to on a tour in Europe. So Lloyd was there basically to support, you know, emotional support, call it or whatever. But he also, Lloyd was so concerned that the job be done properly that he wanted to be there. So we had the two of them and Sparrow, of course, did a great job. This was 2008 and it was a fairly short tour in Europe, maybe two, three weeks. But he, you know, Sparrow, of course, loved the, loved the job and, um, we didn't see him again very much until unfortunately when Lloyd passed away, he was the first person that we thought of. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. so this catalog of also joined many other singers over the years, uh, both in recording and on stage. Uh, can you talk about that a uh, little bit? A so few of the people you've worked with, this catalog rather have worked with. Well, the first one was Owen Gray. The, the next was that I believe those shows in uh, in Jamaica where we played with. Well, we didn't actually back them though. They were backed by. We did do us some kind of re, um, rehearsal and and a couple of songs with Prince Buster because I remember the rehearsal. And it was oh Ken Booth for the Bashika album, which we've just re-released. Ken Booth has a tune on that, and, and Bob Andy came to that session. But Bob Andy and the producer didn't agree, and the tune was great. And I was so disappointed. And I found the tune. He cut the tune with somebody else, and it's it's good, but it's, you know. And that's like, like you're a hater. Yeah, it's just like some electric drum or some, just nothing like what ours was. But it was called the original dance hall. And he talks about how ska was the original dance hall music. And, and, I, and Bob was a particular, I, I really loved him heartily. He was a very, very nice man. And ultimately a very wise man because he knew better than to work with that producer. And, and certainly to take a check from him. <laughs> That's a whole chapter in the book. Yes, you're not kidding. <laughs> You also work with drummer Winston Grumman and guitarist Lynn Tate. Can you tell us about that project? Well, that's all project, That's mistaken. all because I, I met, before I even met any of the Scatolites, early, early on, right after I saw Burning Spear and I joined the Wilson Blue thing in Providence, they were opening most of the shows for the, for the reggae shows. So one of the first artists that we played support for and I met was Toots and there was Winston Grennan on drums 
and there was Andy Basford on mm -hmm. guitar, which mm -hmm. I knew about Andy because Andy also played in a local New England band. Andy's from Connecticut. The band was called Cool Runnins, and they were very good too. So, and I was playing, we had played shows. I think I had met Andy one time before we actually met through Toots. So I, when I he was standing there, I was neither surprised, but very pleased that I knew somebody else in the mix. Right. So, so meanwhile, I'm waiting to meet this guy Toots. And I'm thinking, all right, it's probably another older graying Jamaican with dreadlocks. So I'm sitting in the room and we're talking, people are, you know, we're doing the sound checks or getting ready. And so finally I'm like, where's Toots? And one of the people in the room says, a me that man. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, this guy looks like he's 35. That's, that's all right. And I, I don't know how much older he was in that time. I guess he was probably maybe mid forties, but. I just expected some something, and, and he had no dreads. So, you know, I mean, I, I know now that certainly plenty of Jamaican people and, and certainly reggae players and stuff, but that, back then, it was like, okay, Bob Marley has dreads, Dennis Brown has dreads, all these guys have dreads, so I'm expecting someone with dreads. So it's just very funny, and he just looks so young. He probably looked more like 25, really. He looked like his, his son's brother, not the father. And the son was in the room too. And that was the thing. I was like, oh, you guys are brothers, right? You know? And then the three girls, which, you know, I'm still very friendly with Liba. Unfortunately, unfortunately Melody passed away. Right, unfortunately. So. And um, I haven't seen uh, Gen Genevieve, I think her name is. Mm. I haven't seen her since she left the band in the 90s, I guess. Mm. So I guess she went to sing gospel or something like that. But anyway, back to the Winston Grennan. So Winston, um, I saw he had his local band going on because Winston Grennan and the Ska Rocks. And they used to play at this place in, in Cambridge called the Western Front, which was one of the most famous reggae clubs. The man that owned it, Marvin Gilmore, is 97 years old still promoting and sponsoring reggae music and just opened a cannabis dispensary. Wow. Perhaps one of the oldest institutions in America playing reggae music continuously, I'm guessing. Very, very interesting situation. Mm -hmm. but so um, eventually, as I said before, when I, when I ended up leaving the Scatolites the first time, Winston was very upset with Tommy. He said, you're a fool to let that guy go. And then, of course, called me up and grabbed me himself. <laughs> so he knew that I had right. a feel for other stuff just besides the music. I always kind of had a feel for the business. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I work good, pretty well with people. And I could usually find out a few things and, and help people get from point A to point B in their career or whatever. So... He, you know, he had me join the band, but the, it was kind of rinky-dink stuff, you know, small pay, long, long drives. Winston lived in Woodstock, New York, and I live in Boston. So right, right away, you're talking a good four-hour drive, which that means coming back from a gig, probably, no, and hotel budget, no. So if you want to sleep on the couch or under the bus, maybe you can, 
you know, it was, it was, it was interesting. Yes. I always, always loved the band, you know, that's, they always, his Lynn Tate sometimes, sometimes it was Lynn Tate and Andy Basford. And then Stewie from the Cables, I believe his name is Earl Stewart, maybe. They call him Stewie. Right. He was one of the vocalists from the, uh, uh, hold on. Oh, what's going on here now? Hold on a second. Apparently, the plug that I've been plugged into is not on. Oh, <clears throat> but maybe I should use this opportunity to remind oh. our viewers that I'm presently in conversation with the great Ken Stewart. He's been honing his skills for, gosh, since uh, the early cool. 80s, yeah, as a professional working with the Scatterlights. <laughs> yes, sir. So I think pick up where we left off. We we're talking about, um, I think. Winston. Yeah, in and out of. Uh, oh, no. Stewie. Yes. So Stewie right. from oh, the cables. Uh, still with the cables when they play, I guess, occasionally. They he came and he lived with in Winston's apartment with him. Uh -huh. he, he stayed there so long. Winston had a problem keeping bass players. I'm not quite sure why, but he was always changing bass players. So Stewie got so frustrated and he stayed so long, he learned how to play the bass for the damn band. <laughs> You're not kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I'd be interesting to know a little bit about Alinte, that genius, that brilliant guitarist, uh, amazing, amazing guy. From the Twin Islands of Trinidad and Tobago. He was you a work with him as character. Well, you have worked with him. Oh yeah. Well, mm -hmm. the first time I met Lynn was when we did a show in Toronto with Roy Shirley, wow. the Scatolites, and Desmond Decker in the Aces. On or about what time period that now? That was 1990, shortly before Jackie died. And put together basically by myself and Jackie, who have a promoter, but as far as the promoter talking to the, the Scatolites part of the thing. But, but the problem was, again, by now, Lloyd Nib had his, enough paperwork that he could go to Canada. Mm -hmm. And Lloyd Brevet did as well. But Tommy could not. So Tommy, you know, we we couldn't have our band leader there. So it was immediately agreed that Lynn Tate would lead the band because it was actually, a lot of them said that he should have been the band leader from the beginning. <laughs> and Dizzy always laughs about it because he says, yeah, well, we didn't want Tate to lead the band because he was Trinidadian. And instead we got Tommy who's Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I think it was such a profound loss for the music fraternity in Jamaica, the music growth and development, uh, and also personally for Lynn Tate when he left for Canada. Because he left what, 68, just at the, in the midst of Rocksteady, he just upon time. Yeah, that was kind of weird because that was like his, uh -huh. he was just starting to get some notoriety. I'm working yeah, with, um, what's his name now? Um, well, he had gotten plenty, though. Remember, he played us one of the biggest songs 
That's what I'm Johnny talking Rocks about. Era. He's on practically all the big ones. What's his name? Johnny Nash. Mm-hmm. The Johnny Nash tune, Hold Me Tight, was right, he's on, mm-hmm. And that was a hit in the United States of America. I don't know if anybody actually knew that when they played on it, that there was a hit, but... Mm-hmm. So I guess he doesn't tarry one place long. Okay, I live in Jamaica for a couple of years. I'm gone, Toronto. And there was not much happening in Canada at the time. I think Canada killed, kills Korea more than anything else. If you look at well, some of the guys who have lived there, Jackie Mitu, Leroy Sibley, Stranger Paul, they weren't able, and Lynn Tate, they weren't able to really make any headway and uh, create Lynn impression. Lynn wasn't that interested in that part of his career. He, he was more making money as an arranger. And he would get hired by people totally out of the genre to arrange oh, their music. I see. That's why we didn't really, he was still successful, but he didn't necessarily do a lot in, in reggae or right. music. Mm-hmm. Well, before I turn things over, uh, some fun question to uh, our producer, Eric. Um, you've yeah, also I known and worked closely with uh, singer Dion Nibs, and uh, he's the son of Floyd. That would be my last question, right? Okay. Yeah, you have worked with him. Tell us a little bit about him. I think yeah. I'd ask you about Dan off air that he's such a great singer and um, why he hasn't made a name or impact in a more profound way, so to speak. I don't know. <laughs> he, well, Dion, I met Dion on the first headlined oh no on the bunny whaler tour he performed there at irvine meadows when we did the show with with bunny and the tour with bunny so that and i was so impressed that obviously if we were going to do another tour now mind you the first year i spent previously year and a half almost was without any singer in the scatolites there was no vocals mm-hmm. so the show was not i mean there was owen gray at the Owen gray show but in a normal Scatolite show, we didn't have a regular vocalist. So that was kind of boring for the fans, I think, you know, they were more, they were definitely interested in hearing some, some lyrics. Right, and you so, sense that, I suppose. So mm-hmm. when, they, when Dion showed up now and he's singing songs like Cry Me a River by Jackie Opal, and literally had the, you know, like, he could have had the girls eating out of his hand. It was, you know, Irvine Meadows was crazy. They were just screaming, almost like girls that see the Beatles or something. His voice was really impressive. And when we did that slow ballad, it really stood out even more than the regular Jackie Opal songs like Welcome You Back Home and and that kind of stuff. So I was immediately impressed and, and Dion ended up going home and then he came back to live here permanently within about two years. Mm-hmm. So then he joined Tommy in the Scatolites, and I, I was already gone from the Scatolites, but I was living in Boston, and so was Dion. So we saw each other. And then ultimately, he had a falling out with Tommy, too. So he didn't want to perform with the Scatolites, and we started ultimately a year or two later, started the band known as Tion Nib and the Agitators. So that was, you know, that was a, a, we met a couple of guys that had had a, been in a band called Steady Earnest, which was the, an offshoot of the band I mentioned before called Bim Scala Bim. Mm-hmm. Same lead singer, Dan Vitale. Big up, Dan. So 
Dan is the person that I stay with in Panama. He he owns a, a small resort in Panama. In I'm Isla. sure he'll be watching this when it's uploaded. Isla Bastimentos in Bocas del Toro. So um, there was the bass and drum from that band were trying to put together this thing. And there was me and Dion trying to do our thing. So we all came together and said, all right, let's do this. So the first rehearsal was a demo. We made a demo tape, bang. And we had gigs within two months. We opened for Toots. Wow. And we started to take off pretty heavy because the music was huge. Boston, again, was one of the meccas of ska and reggae for most of the 80s and 90s. It was just huge. And we played everywhere and we did this and that. And we started going to New York and going to Philadelphia and traveling around. And then all of a sudden, Roland passed away. Oh, well, Tommy and Roland both passed away in, in 1998. <clears throat> and I was, you know, getting hearing rumors like they wanted me back and of course you know i saw lloyd all the time and he always said he wanted me to come back to the band and and then lloyd brevet started to really make noise with the, the management that he wanted me back in the band so i think they were a little bit lost they had management but they didn't have you know that because tommy was the manager sort of but he was really just the band leader <laughs> so they didn't have a band leader and that certainly wasn't my role, but Cedric kind of took over that role, even though, you know, it kind of looked like maybe Lester was the band leader, but Cedric was really the band leader when he came back to the band or came to the band. And so that was, uh, I, I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second. But. Uh, yeah, but that's all right. So you, it's, it's been a little while. So, you know, it, it's a huge pleasure to introduce uh, a producer and good friend, Eric Kohler. He has some fun questions you want uh -huh. to throw your way. Hello, Ken. Greetings. Great to see you again. Yeah, man. Uh, I, I, in honor of uh, Devin and, and Roger and their reggae pod clash, I'm wearing their shirt because I, I really enjoyed the interview that you did on there. Learned a lot uh, from you and them. We just found out that we're going to play with the Agrolites Friday night at the Punk Rock Bowling. Oh, in Vegas. They've changed the order and, and situation a little bit. So we're, we'll be, uh, I was just talking to Roger on Facebook a few. Nice. But, yeah, we, we both going to see, because uh, we were just together at Supernova. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agrolites has cool. been one of my favorite bands in the genre since they started. Oh, yeah. yes. I'm right there with you and... Uh, Scatterlights have always been near and dear to me, and, and I've had the pleasure of seeing them. Uh, unfortunately, not not ever with Tommy. He was he was when I saw them. He was uh, I think it was in the mid '90s. He was might have already been sick or, or out for a little while. But they've always been near and dear. And, and thanks to thanks to you and even even, even Brian Keel, I've had a chance to meet uh, a number of the of the legends over the years. And and I enjoy the the back and forth with you and Junior talking about. You know, little anecdotes about some of them. Um, to touch on a couple um, that, that that Junior did not ask you about, um, talk a little bit about Wrangler, Ernest Wrangler. Well, Ernest, of course, is one of the best guitarists in the world by far. Mm. I was listening to an album with him and Monty from I yes. think it's from the late seventies called Gemento. 
mm-hmm. and they play a, a George Benson song on it. And it's kind of funny because he's playing circles around George Benson's. <laughs> Are you allowed to say that? You know, we can't get arrested. <laughs> I'm sorry, but. And there's an album called Wrangling Roots. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. That one. That's jazz fusion. Mm-hmm. That I cannot believe that nobody got a hold of that or or, or got wind of the, their, their abilities at that time. Because Monty was always on the jazz circuit. Sure. But yeah. Wrangling, Wrangling Roots isn't Monty. It's only Ernest and Val Douglas on bass. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had the pleasure of seeing... Wrangland did some stuff with Joey Altrude out here. Right. I had right. a chance to see him there. Um, Lloyd, Lloyd Nib was on those sessions. Yes. What about the Buru Jazz? Yeah, oh yeah. Come on, Joey. We're waiting. We, 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 we've talked to Joey about that. I have a burned copy of, uh, of some of those, uh, some I of those tunes. I did too, but my computer that is stuck in it won't boot up anymore. Uh, so mad. Mm. Well, maybe maybe if I if I dig mine out, maybe I'll burn it for you. Um, <laughs> Uh, talk about Monty Alexander, uh, who also recorded with Satellites. Well, actually, I didn't finish talking about Rang. Oh, sorry. Yes, please. I just wanted to mention, I did mention it briefly, but he did, we didn't perform together at the Jamaica House in 2000, but he was there performing with his own little combo or whatever. So I did converse with him and got to know him a little bit. I don't think I had met him before that. But he had been, you know, I think, yeah, they had already made the Ball of Fire album, but I wasn't on those sessions, so I didn't get to participate and meet him then. So he uh, he was always particularly, and most of them were like this, you know, they just kind of take you under their wing and immediately be friendly and just, sure. and then I would see him here and there. And one, I saw him at the Blue Note when he was playing with Monty, and he immediately, oh, how are you doing? And, and got me into a little bit of trouble. Uh, I'm not even going to tell that part of the story. <laughs> All right. He was trying to misbehave, and I was trying to help him, and I got in trouble for it. <laughs> trouble. Troublemaker, Wanger. Anyway, um, who's the next person now? Oh, Monty Alexander. Okay, so Monty. Hi. Guess I met him at the Roscoe Gordon concert. Oh, no, it was less. Okay, so I had a band with Lester. I, Lester invited me to be the keyboard player when he started the band called the Lester Sterling and the Skamaka, which had very few performances, but the first one, the first major one was at SOB's in Manhattan in about 1993. And Roscoe Gordon was there. And Coxon was a big supporter of Lester in this new project. So Coxon had brought Roscoe Gordon. Herbie Miller was there with Monty. There was all kinds of folks in the audience. And Scofflaws opened. That's, I, think Ooh, I, met, wow. I think I met Buford O'Sullivan that night. And Victor Rice. Okay, sure. So... That was uh, that was the first time I met Monty, and then didn't really see him too much. And then when I came back to the band in um, I don't know, it was probably late '99, early 2000s. We played a show at SOBs again, and he showed up, and he came up and played with me. 
<laughs> unannounced, unrehearsed. Just that's cool. That's great. Yeah. You're an honor. Yeah. yeah. And he's he's talked about having me come play with him, but that hasn't happened yet. I, I look forward to that very much. I hope it'll happen someday. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's amazing. Oh, I enjoyed very much. He did these 20 sessions, kind of like what you guys are doing. You know, he reminisced. I, I watched I watched a little storytelling. Yeah. I love reminiscing that. in rhythm. It's available on YouTube. There's 20 of them. And I have to find them. Yeah. He talks about how Frank Sinatra took him under his wing. Yep. And that's how he got his whole, like, playing in Vegas for Frank Sinatra. Yeah, like, it's incredible. Yeah. All yeah. these people. And, yeah, we're, we're going to try to get Monty for this, too. But I'm also, I'm a friend with uh, this p famous piano player called Roger Calloway. Actually, he's a better, better went to school with my dad. And uh, Roger plays uh, the piano at the beginning and the end of All in the Family, the TV sure. show. Yeah, uh -huh. he's a huge. He worked with Bobby Darren as an arranger. He scored the the Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand, um, the, wait, no, Star is Born. So anyway, Roger uh, Monty told me that he introduced Roger to his wife, <laughs> and. Roger was good friends and still is with so many other musicians. And you just, it's one of these cats, kind of like Phil Chen. He's another one. Sure. Everybody you meet yeah. in, the, in the music business, they know this man. Whether he, they play polka or whatever they play, they know this guy. Right, right. Yeah, we're fortunate to have uh, Phil Chen uh, yeah. living here in Los Angeles. Um, so our previous guest was Norma Frazier, who who's also worked with uh, with you Palmer is, is one of my favorite favorite people i enjoyed her interview i watched that very yeah close she's so, so, I mean, so sweet her, we, we if we if our timing was a little better we would be playing a show together up in eugene on october 2nd but it got just it didn't fall right quite right yeah yeah no i i, I get it timing is everything um talk talk about the experience at legends of ska that massive show that Brad Klein put together and, and obviously a documentary that, um, you know, we've seen pieces of, but I know it's not out yet. Well, if I can blow my own horn for a second, <laughs> I, I put, I helped Brad, you know, align all the musicians and get them all there and all of that. And I wasn't really supposed to perform or I wasn't, you know, and, and I told Brad that I didn't need any money. I think I asked him to pay for one night or for the hotel if I came up and I drove there. Uh, in my car because Toronto isn't that far. So I made a nice trip out of it and went through New Hampshire, Vermont and New York. And, and then got there to just the most amazing experience I think I've had ever in my in my musical career. Like yeah. all of these people that I've only heard about and they're yeah. still alive and well and really able to perform. And People like Patsy, who had nobody had seen her in 40 years. Mm -hmm. She hadn't mm -hmm. touched a microphone in 40 years. But the minute she did, it sounded like the voice right on the record. Yeah. Yeah. The footage of Patsy and Stranger. Theater. Uh, yep. I mean, there were so many people I didn't hadn't met. Um, oh, uh, Wilson. Uh, what's his name? First name? Oh, Wilson, um, Wilson and Higgs. Roy, Roy, Roy Wilson. Yes, Roy Wilson, yeah. hadn't met him. Uh, of course, Justin Hines, who was I had met, and that's how I met Vin Gordon. Oh, when, okay, yeah. 
And, you know, when Justin, uh, Justin was always one of my favorite vocalists ever. And, and Alton, Prince Buster, all these people. Just, yeah, yeah, the, the who's who. Well, and, the, and the musicians as well, which most of which I did know. I didn't know Jojo Bennett, met him. Little Guineer, Bobby Guineer was there, didn't know him. Only All these people's reputation had preceded them. Yeah, yeah. You knew Rico, obviously, right? Oh, yes. Rico, yeah. So t- t- talk, talk about Rico. Oh, God. Rico and I became friends immediately. Again, Rico came through with Jazz Jamaica in 94. And I saw him again shortly after when I started touring in Europe. And then we saw each other in Japan and we became friends. And Rico, I left the band for a short time in, in 2010-ish. And Rico called me up. He said, Ken, if you start a band, I want to be in it. <laughs> he, he, always, he loved me for some reason. He Such a nice, I helped, he was, I he was great. Get, I helped him get food and ganja in Japan, which getting ganja in Japan can be a real... I'm sure. So ever since that, I was like, I could do no wrong. Yeah, yeah. We, we we had the pleasure to work with him a few times and yeah, a little road trip from Sierra Nevada World Music Fest down to Los Angeles and mm-hmm. yeah, Rico and a couple of shows out here. Yeah, some shows out here. He so. was one of the sweetest, sweetest men. Really. Yes, sir. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, here's Humble. a question. Yes, yes. And can't Chan, say anything. Chan, Chan, well, I've met well, Chan, Chan, Chan Thornton, sure. The, the three: the Michael, Bammy, Rose, Tan, Tan, Rico. And that's the other thing. So you had Legends of Ska. That was my first honor, and I didn't finish the story because mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to perform, but they, when I was there and they saw me there, they was like, no, Ken has to play, on the, <laughs> especially on the Scatolites of instrumentals. They wanted me on the, on the keyboard. Wow. So I got to play, and I'm in the film. What an honor, yeah. So the same thing basically happened in in uh, London in 2007, they put together the Alpha School thing. And I, again, I helped them round up all the, the people, but I wasn't necessarily supposed to play, but he did pay my plane fare to come over and hang out. So I got there and hang out and Rico again, Rico, I don't care if that guy's Jamaican or not. Ken Stewart's playing keyboards for our second, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was very honored. Yeah, well, Charles. If Charles is listening, yes, we, we love each other. The keyboard in question, we we know each other well. You know. Yeah. Nice. Um, so it was cool. funny though. <laughs> so a question from a mutual friend, Ernesto, out here, Ernesto Arce. Um, He's asking for you to talk about how Jackie Mewtwo taught you the right chords after you played something close for years. Yeah, well, Tommy's charts weren't always so accurate. You know, <laughs> they were they were rearrangements. They weren't necessarily what. And and what actually what the specific instance I'm going to refer to is Jackie kind of changed the way the arrangement too, but it was so sweet the way he did it. I really liked it, and I remembered it so that when I rejoined the band and we recut the Guns of Navarone. The From Paris with Love version is this new arrangement with some slightly different chord changes. If you listen to the original, okay, 
or you even listen to the I think it's on High Bop they remade it which is twice as fast as the original so we brought the tempo back down and from Paris Love with Love One but we changed the, the chords and the bridge slightly to this Jackie Matu thing that he had taught me and there was a couple tunes, I guess, that he straightened me out. Some transitional chords. Right. Of course, it was always, you know, Jackie had, Jackie had evolved immensely in the time from when he played in the Scatolites to what the first years. And obviously, there was 30 years of, of growth and development and musical sure. knowledge. Of course. Yeah. Um, how did you become, uh, obviously, a, a, a player, a musician? And you you did allude to that you've always been business-minded, but how did you become the manager of the Skydolites? Oh, God. Um, after we made Bashika, and those guys made that guy the manager of the band as well as the label owner, things started to go sour. <laughs> Right. Because I had always had some slight managerial role from the Bunny Whaler tour. Mm -hmm. they, they decided I was going to be the road manager mm -hmm. just by default. This guy's American. We're in America. He's got, you know, just helping them do whatever. So I was appointed road manager of that tour. And then I put together basically without being the manager or having any title, it was me that put together the next tour. I was the one that called up Kevin Morrow. Mm -hmm. at the, at, I, I called George Michaelo, who was the biggest agent in the country back then, Fast Lane International. He had Burning Spear. He sure. Had, yep. He had everybody, Lucky Dubay. He had all these artists that were huge. So I called George and he's like, I can't do it, Ken. He said, call this guy. This guy just did all my... West Coast dates with Spear. So that was Kevin Morrow. Mm -hmm. At that time, Kevin Morrow had his office in the in the upstairs office of uh, of the Belly Up. Okay. He hadn't gone, you know, he had Falcon Morrow was the sure. agency. Yeah. Sam Falk died, and then Kevin went to work for House of Blues. And of course, now is is one of the biggest bookers in all of Live Nation. I'm not sure actually if he's still there, but yeah, no, I, I think he moved back out here and is doing some yeah, I think stuff. He's, he's still active. He does yeah, he has his own company. He's got his own little thing. Yeah. So anyway, that was the start of that. And then, um, well, I've kind of lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, you, you as the manager. Yeah, well, okay. So the, the whole thing with the... Um, the Basically, this guy produced our album and then started bouncing checks and everything started falling apart. But they had made him the manager on paper. But because he actually wrote bad checks, he was criminally, you know, we could get out of the contract because he cr committed a criminal act. Plus, basically with those guys, if you're the money source, you're the manager. So I just made sure I started, I started getting gigs because I knew this guy couldn't do that. Right. And I knew, so I just got gigs. So that, but I also, 
And it was actually, we played reggae in the park in San Francisco. And that's when I actually came with paperwork and said, all right, guys. Oh, the other thing, my car got repossessed. And it was a particularly embarrassing situation because I was actually camping in a campground with my daughter. And I left the campground to go to my girlfriend's house for a minute. And, or it was like an hour away. So I'm at my girlfriend's and I come out to go back to the campground and the car is gone. So they've come and <laughs> possessed it. And that was all because of this guy. Oh. So I was, you know, I was fed up. Sure. Enough and, is enough. And, and it was always a matter of, they, you know, they knew I was good at what I did, but they didn't want to let me have the title. And as far, you know, supposedly I was the road manager officially back then, but the other alleged manager didn't even know what backline meant. Mm. He didn't have any skills. He was just a big blowhard, mouth, mouth, mouth. Right, right, right. So he couldn't do squats. So I started to prove myself and look, I'm the manager. Sign this paper. And that was that. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, and listen, I mean, you've, you've done wonders and you've kept, you've kept the that was going. That was at that point. But at that point, you know, there was no Tommy. There was no band leader. Right. It was Lloyd Brevet, Lloyd Nib, and Lester who none of really had, I mean, Lloyd Nib was the one who always pretty much, it was Lloyd's idea to have the band, but he knew from day one, he couldn't lead it. So yeah. he got Tommy to lead. Right. And that's kind of the way it went until yeah. Tommy died. So then it's like, all right, now what? So they made me the official manager and I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I started going i've known every aspect of the music business because of my dad because you know i was always going to shows with him since i was old enough to watch sure mm -hmm. so i always got every aspect of of what was going on i i actually was a promoter when i was 14 i hired two of my friends rock bands and i rented the grand army hall and had a concert i was in eighth grade <laughs> from a young age yeah yeah Yes. Yeah. So, um, and, and to this day, are, are you um, are you still managing them or, or is there yes, someone else? I, am. I have I have an assistant or a business partner and we're co-managing. She helps me with most of the Internet type stuff and complicated stuff that I don't really want to deal with. And, and it's menial stuff that I don't want to deal with. And, and that's flow, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Shout out to Flo. Yeah. Hey, Flo. Hey, hey. <laughs> oh, I think she's over in Europe, right? She's in Genova, yes. She okay. actually has a work visa to be here, but they won't let her leave and use it. Because of, because of COVID? I wrote a letter to the Italian government in June to justify her coming back over. Oh. They still haven't approved it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So anyway, I... Um, I did hire a management company, an official one for a while, and that didn't quite go the way we wanted it to. So I right. wound up back in the saddle. <laughs> there you go. Well, it is wonderful to see just the, the um, you know, the continued involvement of, you know, the, the legends and the foundation artists and those that have been there from the early on, you know, like right now obviously having Larry McDonald and, and whatever you can get Ben Gordon and, and obviously some of the others and Doreen looking forward to having her back. 
um, as far as um, as far as the the Scandalex name itself, I mean, how how does that work, and, and who who like controls the name? And, and, and just thinking about the future of the Scatolites, because uh, we've lost so many musicians, right? So many legends over the years, outside of the music that we're talking about. But, um, but just as far as thinking ahead about the future of the Scatolites. The name was trademarked by Lloyd Nibb on behalf of everybody, but his, he, it's his part of his estate. Okay. So right now, the way it works is I technically lease the use of the name from the Nib family. And if maybe people, maybe not everybody's happy with that, but there's nobody really coming saying that. I mean, not anybody, yeah. not anybody that matters. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Of course. There right. might be people that saying something about it, but yeah, no, no families. Nobody's objecting. Nobody's saying, hey, this guy's screwing up everything. Certainly, I could think the band could be doing better in, in many ways, whether me personally or, I mean, just the way this, this wonderful business works. <laughs> what, what we which, have to do. Which gets more and more challenging as, as the days go on. But, but, but you know, the, the carrying the torch and, 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 and you think of any other working band that's been out there continuous over the years from that area, there, there is none. So, so that's a huge credit to everyone that Junior asked you about, everyone that you've worked with, everyone that we've talked about. You know, and, I know what makes me the proudest is when a, a fellow, not our fellow, but a, a, when another veteran Jamaican musician compliments me on what I'm doing. Sure, I bet. Whether that be musically, personally, with the band, or business-wise with the band, people like, I don't know, Robbie Lynn or something, you know. Yeah, 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 no, I, I, I could imagine. He called, he's, and he sees that we're on tour with Stranger Cold and says, oh, I want to come up. I'm going to be at that show. I want to <laughs> play the harmonica on, on Rough and Tough. Uh, you feel good, man. Of course, as as it should, as it should. Um, so 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 talking about um, what's ahead for the band. Recently, uh, you worked with Jump Up Chuck and, and re reissued the album that you talked about. Um, what else is upcoming outside of? I know that you're on tour, but any, what else can fans be on the lookout for? We've got a bunch of songs in the in the can that were recorded to to be voiced by Doreen, mm -hmm. and the whole this delay and you know they were recorded in, in at some of them at tough most of them at tough gong oh. after we got off the boat from damian marley's cruise mm -hmm. we went to this tough gong studio and recorded with ken booth mm. and with peter austin from the clarendonians yes <laughs> <laughs> but we're trying and, to and what kind of sounds huh? Oh, I'll mostly. Well, see, this was the thing is Doreen's never made it. There's never been an album, Doreen Schaefer and the Scatolites. So most of these tunes were are the tunes that you see and hear Doreen performing with us most of the night. Mm -hmm. If she had, didn't do them with somebody else already, we felt like she should do them with us. And so we're talking about also her, some of her tone, remaking some of her tunes with that she had with Jackie. Wow. Mm -hmm. and adorable you yeah 
uh, welcome you back home. That would be amazing. The vow, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Nice. The classics. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because as Toots, Toots constantly told me, he said, Ken, don't listen to him. Don't worry about new tune. Keep recording, re-recording your big hits. Wow. It's good advice. Oh, yeah, you're not <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Work for him. Yes. And I'm on his, I'm on the only Grammy winning record I play on is his. Oh, yes. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yes. you're not kidding. He never yes. grow old, and he never. Yes. Did, man. The guy <laughs> yeah. had so much energy left in him. What a My shame! My goodness, mm -hmm. I know. Shame. Big, a big, a big. Yes, loss. a coronavirus. And, so and, and, that's, and that's probably mm -hmm. a fitting right. way to end this. What we're talking about none other than yes, two cities. But uh, one, I the Scatterlights performed in New York shortly after Reggae Sunsplash. I am wondering if you have any memory of that. I don't think you were with them at that time. Mm -hmm. It was uh, in Brooklyn, a young lady. You're was, talking after when they reformed in 83? Yes. Okay. Uh, you remember anything about that? So have, have you ever heard any discussion about that? I believe you're referring to the same shows I was referring to at the Village Gate. It wasn't Brooklyn. It was at the Village Gate. No, man. That was, this one was in Brooklyn, man. I was there. It was a little oh, really? small club. As big as your bathroom on Empire Boulevard in Brooklyn. So you're, you're, he's talking early. He's talking 83 after, after the sun splash. So you're talking earlier than right? Yeah. Uh, shortly after Sunsplash. Okay. That sounds like it must have just been whoever was already in New York, because Nib and Brevet wouldn't be there. It would be Winston Granin on drums and whatever bass player they got. With Because Lester, Roland, already lived. Tommy didn't get to USA until 1985. Mm -hmm. No, we could only stand outside because we, I know, I, I think there were like eight guys playing horns, but oh. we, it was the club was very small, so we just hear scatter lights outside. I mean, <laughs> couldn't even get inside where so many people came out. There but it was a, a fundraiser for a Jamaican a teenager who was in New York and was sick, and somebody put it together. In a I, very think, I think it was just Roland and Lester. I know that there's some reviews, maybe Brian Keogh, you can ask if he has a copy of. Yeah, I think he showed me once some article about a review of a show with Lester and Roland that had been put together that was mm. not well reviewed. And we also didn't get good reviews when we did the Bunny Whaler tour. We performed at Radio City Music Hall because wow. we had lost, you know, I mentioned before that the band had gone to, to Japan. So when when the band went to Japan or the, the three guys went to Japan, we had we went from a 10 piece to a seven piece. And then when we got to Radio City Musical, where my knees were literally knocking together, because <laughs> there was no Jackie. This place was four stories high. Sure. Yep. And I was just like, oh my God. So anyway, we didn't have, you know, we were missing quite a few of the members that had mm -hmm. made us sound so huge like we did in in la and stuff and now we're not sounding so huge mm -hmm. so the review in the times says that we were underwhelming <laughs> i love that <laughs> well well you've made That's... you made up for it ever since so <laughs> yes <laughs> so yeah. new york now became uh, sorry california now became big bad 
Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, the Cal, Cal, and still is our main market. That's why, you know, of all the places that we're doing an, a tour with actual routing, it's coming to see you guys, you know. We got, by the way, if I may plug it tonight, yes, please do. Thursday night, we're in Phoenix at the Musical Instrument Museum. Mm -hmm. Friday night, we're playing with the Agrilites at the Punk Rock Bowling Festival. And Saturday, we're at Skyland in, in Los Angeles, big festival. Yes. And Sunday, we're in Santa Cruz at Mall's Alley. Then Wednesday, we're at Mill Valley at the Sweetwater Music Hall. Uh, Thursday, we're in Eugene, uh, no, we're in uh, Humboldt in um, Arcata. Mm -hmm. in the humble brewery and then friday night we're playing with the bandulus in eugene and saturday we're playing with the bandulus in portland and sunday we're playing with the seattle lights in <laughs> seattle <laughs> Why well, nice. Sky's alive and well, man. Sky's yes, really yeah. and truly alive and well. <laughs> alive yes, and well. Yes, yes. You, really, you know, there's you renewed really interest in Sky. Uh, there's <laughs> renewed interest in Sky. You know, several books came out over the past yeah, oh, couple of months. Yeah, yeah it's man. been a big year. Uh, been a big Mark Wasserman's book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Another guy, Aaron Aaron Coon. Aaron Carnes. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. Eric. Just friended him on Facebook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, yeah, I wonderful. saw the book. I haven't. I didn't see much of it, but yeah, we we, yeah, we, inter we interviewed both of them on the show too. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I missed that. Yeah, some some great um, great conversations. Yes, and, you're not kidding. And, and Ken, really really appreciate your time. We'll, we'll see you. We'll see you at one of the LA shows, obviously. Um, and and just thank you for for doing what you're doing and for for keeping it going. We we, we know we know it's never easy. Um, it's mostly my pleasure, but the, the actual business is really mm -hmm. quite the pain in the neck. But yeah, well, you know, uh, Ken, I have to share something with you. I don't, Eric didn't know I was going to tell you this, but when the Scatolites came back, uh, I'd say approximately after you came back the second time, Eric said one of the good things that we really and truly have to appreciate is the energy that these new players are playing with. Additionally, they have preserved the integrity of the original. So that cannot be criticized. It must be complimented. My last True. words. Very good. <laughs> and actually to that point, uh, very important. Yeah. We would be remiss. Yeah. Uh, the, the younger, and I say younger, but I mean, but the current players that we didn't talk about that are on tour, uh, can you name them? Well, we have Sparrow Thompson on drums. We have Val, oh no, I'm sorry. Val is, um, not going to be on this tour. You're kidding. He's sick? Uh, he's having health issues. Mm. So we uh, we have a guy from Anguilla. Ooh. They call him Taloa. His name is Philip. Jesus, I don't even... Philip Jordan, I think? No, I better not quote me on that. And he knows yeah, the Scatterlight songs? Yes, man. He's very... He used to play with a, a very famous drummer from the East Coast that they, we call Drummy Glenn, who's actually from Trinidad, but he, he was way, he goes way back. He used to play with Val in New York City. And Talawa comes from, I think he's a, also a Berkeley grad, though. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. He plays with some of the best, and he's mm -hmm. very, very good. Nice. Nobody's going to be disappointed. I'm sure. Nice. Yes, so I guess we reach uh, just about reach our destination, eh? 
Yes. Yes, man. Ken. Thanks, Ken. Oh, it will be a global ska festival in Mexico City on November 14th. Yes, I'm trying to get to that one. <laughs> also with the Agrilites and Strangical. I know, will, man. We'll sing some songs with the Wow, scapula. all right. Ooh. I know. Yes. Excellent. So you're not back in uh, Strangical, you're just uh, playing some songs. No, we are playing. I'm not. No, he's playing with both, with a Mexican band backing him. Uh -huh. He's going to sing some songs with us as well. Nice. Wow. Came up last minute because I told them that Dorian couldn't make it. So he said, well, we'll get Stranger to come up. Yes. Nice. Nice. Stranger nice. always loves to sing with us and we very much love him. Yeah. Very yeah. nice guy, sir. Very nice yes, guy. Yes. There's one man I know has no enemies nowhere on planet Earth. Stranger. <laughs> More <Yes>. like Stranger. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, Ken, really and truly, thank you. Uh, been in My conversation pleasure, with Ken Stewart. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for all the yes. years of support from Los Angeles fans, yes, friends, man. musicians. Mm -hmm. One love. And many yes, more, sir. and many more. Mm -hmm. Junior, thank you. Oh, thank you as well, man. And uh, please follow us on History of Alaska on Instagram. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our Facebook group. And please follow me on uh, Instagram at Junior Francis. This series is produced by my good friend here, Ericola. This is his brainchild and also by Rockery Radio. And please follow at Rockery underscore radio on Instagram for fresh rock, rhythm, soul, and Jamaican music-inspired daily playlists. Once again, want to thank everyone for yes, and, listening, and, for participating, and making this happen. And real quick, the final word, Ken, the, the, uh, the scatolites and social media, um, the social media handle, uh, the Scatolites Band, but if you go facebook.com slash Scatolites, yep. Instagram.com slash Scatolites, Twitter, et cetera, it's all Scatolites. <laughs> Perfect. Mm -hmm. All right. Scatolites.com. Mm -hmm. And Ken, thank you also for taking a stand against injustice. You're always speaking up yes. on behalf of uh, very true, very the plight well. of African-American and Black people in general. Uh, it takes tremendous courage to do that. So want to thank true. you. Had to mention that. No, it just uh, comes natural. <laughs> yes. All uh, right. I've always fought against injustice. Yes. Just want to bring that up. Like the Scatolites only doing 10 shows in one year. Couldn't accept that. Right. <laughs> I know. That's <laughs> true. All right. Good. Yes. Many yes. thanks and much love and big respect to you. Uh, thank you, Junior. Thank Indeed. you, Ken. Give our best to, the, to everyone and safe travels out there on the road as well. All right, you take care. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you. All right, yes, take care. Bye-bye.